Turn your Bibles to Romans chapter 8. Last week we looked at the end of chapter 6 and all of chapter 7. Today we look at all of chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. Last week we saw that we're no longer slaves to sin because we have died to sin when Christ died for our sins. Now we are set free because we are now slaves of righteousness. We learned in, in Romans 6, 23, that the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Today we look at chapter 8. To be sure, there are about a, a hundred different sermons that could emerge here from Romans chapter 8, but I had the opportunity to only preach one. We begin in verse 1. Therefore, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Under the old epoch, when sin and death and the law reigned unrestrained, a curse fell upon everyone who didn't keep every bit of the law. But now the new epoch of the Spirit, Christ, has borne our condemnation, redeeming believers from the curse of the law by becoming the curse for us. We are not condemned because Christ has been condemned for us. How would it change your life this morning if you saw yourself as really forgiven? How would it free you to be able to say to Satan, quit reminding me of yesterday's sin because I'm looking forward to tomorrow's glory? How would it change you if you really believe that God loved you enough to send Jesus to die in your place, to pay for your sins, that you really could walk away forgiven? That's what Romans Eight says, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Chapter 8 is the chapter of the Holy Spirit. Have you ever noticed that? The Holy Spirit comes to the fore and is mentioned 21 times in Romans chapter 8. Why? The Holy Spirit's only mentioned five times in chapters 1 through 7. And only mentioned an additional eight times in chapters 9 through 16. But right here in this one chapter, 21 times, we're told about the Holy Spirit of God. These early verses remind that we're no longer prisoners to the flesh because we're in the sphere of the Spirit. The Spirit of God, verse 9, dwells in you. In fact, he says, look at verse 9, anyone who doesn't have the Holy Spirit indwelling in them, well, they don't belong to God. If you're a born-again believer, you have the Spirit of God indwelling in you. Now, by what spirit are we indwelt? Verse 11, don't you love it? But if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you. The very spirit that called Jesus forth from the grave is the spirit that indwells you and transforms you to walk in the freedom of forgiveness in the spirit. 
And then in verses 17 through 18, we encounter the crux of the argument of chapter 8. Look at verse 17. If indeed we suffer with him, so that we may also be glorified with him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. We're free from sin. We're forgiven from condemnation. We're also set forth to suffer. For if in only if, verse 17, we are willing to suffer for him, then we will also likewise be glorified with him. Paul is trying to address a persistent problem. You know the problem well. Philosophers have wrestled with it for ages, and you wrestle with it every day. If God is all good, and God is likewise all-powerful, then why do we have innocent people suffering? You see, the three-legged table doesn't work. If you believe that what God was all-good, but wasn't quite all-powerful, then you would understand why God's people sometimes suffer. God wished he could fix it, but he can't. That equation works. Or if you believe that God was all-powerful, but God wasn't likewise all good, he had some cranky days, then you might understand why innocent people suffer. But if you believe, like I believe, that God is all good and all powerful, then you have some explaining to do about why innocent people suffer. Why God's people suffer. How do you do the philosophy on that? The reality is, most Christians have unresolved disappointments with God. The truth is, most believers have unresolved disappointments with God. When you experience suffering, you become part of the largest fraternity on planet Earth. And sometimes we think that we're the only ones Think about this for a moment. The 20th century saw the murder of more Christians for their faith than the 19 previous centuries combined before. It's not getting better for God's people. David Foster Wallace, a famed author, wrote in his last work, The Pale King, the next suitable person you're in light conversation with, you stop suddenly in the middle of the conversation and look at the person closely and say, what's wrong? And you say it in a concerned way, and he'll say, what do you mean? And you say, something's wrong. I can tell. What is it? And he'll look stunned and say, how did you know? He doesn't realize something's wrong with everybody. And often more than one thing. 
He doesn't know that everybody's always going around all the time with something wrong and believing they're exerting great willpower and control to keep other people for whom they think nothing is wrong from noticing. Wow. David Foster Wallace, who wrote those words, committed suicide before the book was finished. It was put together with the notes left on his computer. What we really want in life is a hard and fast equation. If we do the right things, we get the right results. And people who do the wrong thing will get their just desserts. That's what we want. We want the equation to work for God's people. If we do the right things, we'll always get the right results. And for the wicked who do the wrong things, they'll get their just desserts. But we live in a terrifying world where the equation is not meted out before our eyes. I could give you countless examples, but I don't think I have to do much convincing on this one. I'll just give you one. You tell me what eight-year-old Martin Richard was doing wrong. Just a bystander at the Boston Marathon, the little eight-year-old was simply standing close to the finish line, waiting for some friends to finish the race. Brave men don't hide secret bombs in the crowd of innocent people. That's what cowards do, but a coward was at work. Not only was little Richard, not only was little Martin Richard murdered by the senseless violence in Boston, his mother Denise was injured gravely and his sister Jane, age seven, lost a leg. Now, those who think that all suffering is a result of one's own individual sin, I've got time. Explain that equation to me, would you? Oh, there was some sin, all right, but it wasn't the eight-year-old boy or his seven-year-old sister who sinned. They were simply waiting for close friends to run a race. The question in the minds of Paul's readers is this. If we're really now safe from God's wrath, Romans 5, 9, Romans 8, 1, there's no condemnation for us in Christ Jesus. Why, if we're free from God's wrath, why are we still, as God's people, why are we suffering? And Paul's answer is clear at the end of Romans 8. God has set in motion an irrevocable chain of events that will lead to the believer's glorification. God has predestined. In fact, God has called. God has justified and glorified them. The chain cannot and will not be broken by present suffering. You see, what Paul is saying is this. Despite your present suffering, your future glorification is certain. Despite your present suffering, your future glorification is certain. Verse 18, for I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared to the glory that's going to be revealed to us. The word for suffering can mean so many things for Paul. It can be sickness. It can be grief over the death of someone that we love. 
It could be heaviness from the setbacks inflicted upon our spirit or the things that just naturally happen to those who are in the created order that is subject to futility. Look at verse 20. The creation was subjected to futility. But God is promising after the present suffering of this life to transform our bodies. Remember, it's the same spirit that resurrected Jesus from the dead that dwells inside of us. I will transform your suffering body into radiant splendor, says God. The promise is sure and absolutely unaltered by our sufferings here on earth. Paul tells us, verse 22, that even creation groans. We are not alone in our suffering because of the futility of the moment. Look at verse 22. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. But verse 25, we hope and we wait for the other side of suffering, which is glory. I noticed something with more intensity reading Romans 8 this week. Most of the time, we begin those sermons at Romans 8, 28. All things work out together. You know it well. But those can sound like awfully trite words. All things, God causes all things to work out together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to to his purpose. When tragedy has just visited your house and people start the conversation with Romans 8, 28, they speak of God's grand plan saying you just need to be patient and the answer will be clear. They're trite words often that bring little comfort. But if you grasp these words in their true context and not treat it as a cheap salve for real suffering, it changes how you hear them and how you understand the message of Romans 8, 28. Well, first of all, I want to say this. God hears even when we don't speak, verse 26. First of all, God hears even when we don't speak. We ought to begin any sermon on this, not at 28, but at verse 26. In the same way, the Spirit also helps our weakness, for we do not know how to pray as we should, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words, Paul writes. Sometimes when tragedy strikes us, we don't know what to say, and, and sometimes we say too much. Sometimes there are no words that will put the puzzle back together. We are broken, and we are hurt, and we are suffering, and it is real. We don't know what to say to each other. Back on those occasions, we don't know what to say to God. We are numb in the midst of senseless and unmerited pain. Paul has already told us that the cosmos itself is in pain, groaning for the new creation where there is no sin or suffering. And in our broken world, we don't have the right words for the equation. We're struggling even to whisper a prayer to God because we're neither sure of him nor now of his willingness to respond and help. And that's when the Spirit of God works most for us, Paul is saying. 
diving down into the cold, dark depths beyond our human comprehension. God responds to prayers that are nothing more than groans, our painful groans, the tossing and turning on the hot bed of the night when you cannot sleep. Those are authentic prayers to God, and the Spirit takes them and utters them to the Father. Every believer will find herself or himself at some point in their life at the point where groaning is the only prayer you can utter. Number two, God searches our hearts. Look at verse 27. And he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. I love that description of God. He who searches our hearts. You know God by a lot of names or descriptions. Learn a new one today. God is he who searches our hearts. God is a searcher of hearts. It's the image of someone lighting the torch and going down into the dark room full of all sorts of things, looking for something in particular, peeking around in the dark. God is of our lives, our hearts, and searching. What is he wanting to find? What is God going to the room of our heart for? And what happens when he finds it? No doubt God is searching the dark spaces of our hearts. He comes across all sorts of things that we just as soon he'd never come across. They just as soon they remained hidden. But he wants to find above all else is the sound of the Spirit's groaning. God, who is one with the Spirit, is continually in communication with the Spirit who dwells in the hearts of his people. And God understands what the Spirit is saying on our behalf, even though we do not. And God hears the groanings of the Holy Spirit in those dark moments. And he searches our hearts and looks for the presence of his own Spirit, which is a mark that we are indeed called to be his. Here's the third thing. God causes all things to work for the good. The passage does not say that God causes all things. The passage does not say that all things are good. This is the part we hear so often out of context. We have to be so careful how we use it. Use it and within the rhetorical flow of Paul's argument in Romans is the only right way to use it. If you're the one suffering, these are not always the most comforting words. Those who are God's people should not be surprised at the broken equation of suffering. Were not children slaughtered when Herod was threatened by the infant Christ? Babies too young to ascend, sliced by the sword of a jealous king? Was Stephen not stoned in Scripture by jealous Jews? Were the Israelites not treated as slaves with the crack of Pharaoh's whip upon their back? And if you really want to push the equation to its ultimate limit, Jesus, the only sinless person to ever live, goes through the worst suffering of all. There's your equation. Totally innocent. Never sinned. Ends up on a cross. But don't worry, our friends might say. It'll all work out for good. It will 
But the good refers to our final redemption so that we too are glorified with Christ. Our present suffering does not negate our future glory. That is what Paul is saying to the believers in the capital city. I know you're suffering, but don't make a mistake. Your present suffering does not negate the future glory that God has planned for you. Verse 29, this foreknowledge of God means that God has a blueprint for what he's going to accomplish in us. It's a predetermined plan. It's a mystery long hidden in the ages. But now God's purposes are revealed in Christ. To be sure, our salvation does not hinge upon our choosing God so much as it does God's choice of us. Predestination here refers to God's knowing something in advance and affirms that God always has a plan to get his believers to the finish line, working all things together for the good, the eternal good he has determined for them. It means that our glorious destiny is firmly set in God's purposes and no power on earth or heaven can dislodge the purposes of God. Now, I've never understood the preoccupation with predestination. I don't have it. It's just a mystery. The Apostle Paul himself does not attempt to work out the puzzle for us. He doesn't try to penetrate the mystery. It is true that God calls. It is likewise true that we must respond. Both things are true. It's a mystery in the power of God. But what Paul is saying is this. He's using the word predestination for comfort, not to upset us or say some people are left out. You've missed the meaning. The meaning is God has placed his people on a plan and they will arrive at glory as he has determined. The world is groaning. We are groaning. And the spirit is groaning within us. And God will bring it out for the good. To be sure, sometimes our suffering makes us better people. We've all seen that. The lady sits self-centered upon all of her own selfish glories, and then suffering enters her life, and her makeup won't cover it up. And now the one who had a shallow heart, her river runs as deep as the Nile. Suffering has changed her. And God has worked it out for the good. To be sure, sometimes we see how our suffering saves us, and sometimes we never see it on this side. Paul certainly wants us to see in verses 17 through 18 that the present sufferings, whether it's death or divorce or disease, that nothing will be compared to the glory to be revealed that will last not just a lifetime, but that glory is for all eternity. We will once again be reunited in the plan of God with those that we love, those who've died and gone before us. And nothing will ever be able to interrupt those relationships again. 
at that moment and at only at that moment all of our questions will be answered before we think them. And all of God's reasons for permitting our suffering will be clarified or won't matter and our present faithfulness will be redeemed with the future rewards and glory. Another way of saying that God causes all things to work for good is to say that God redeems everything that God permits. That God didn't break our world and God doesn't cause all our suffering, but if he allows it, he will eventually redeem it for his glory. And the fact that you can't see how he's going to redeem it right now doesn't make it any less real. C.S. Lewis once said, the man who denies the sunrise does not harm the sun. God is free. To use our pain, we've had plenty lately, haven't we? God is free to use our pain for his purposes whether we see his love at work or not. He doesn't require our permission. He is God. God never wastes hurt. He can be trusted to redeem all that he permits. Paul is not saying all things are good. Sin is not good. Suffering is not always good. But even in the bad things, God works for the good for those who are in love with him. Paul, oh, Paul, who's saying that God redeems what God allows himself, experiences a great deal of suffering. These are not cheap words from an apostle who had no suffering. Paul is no preacher of health, wealth, and prosperity. Dare you ever remember what the apostle Paul went through for preaching Jesus? Here's a man who knows suffering and ultimately would die for his faith. Murdered. Don't you remember that Paul has a thorn in his flesh and he prays, God, please take it away. And God says, no. And he says, no, God, I need you to take it away. And God says, no, Paul, when you are weak, I am strong. You remember that litany of suffering in 2 Corinthians 11? Paul says, I've been in labors. I've been in prison too many times to count. I've been beaten with rods. I've been the shadow of the danger of death. Five times I've received 39 lashes. Jesus one time. Paul five times. Beaten 39 lashes. I've been stoned. Paul was stoned and left for dead. They thought he was dead and drug him out of the city. I've been shipwrecked three times. I've floated all night on the ocean. I have been in the frigid waters. I've been robbed before. The Jews are mad at me. The Gentiles are mad at me. The people in the city are mad at me. The people out in the country are mad at me. The false teachers are always attacking me. And I've gone through many nights without sleep, and I've been hungry, and I've been cold, and then I can't sleep at night because I stress about the churches I've started. When anyone falls into sin, don't you think I bear the burden? Paul is no shallow Christian who always had good things. 
Paul's life was the worst of things. And Paul says, though I don't understand it, why I had to be beaten, why I had to float in the ocean, why I've been hungry and thirsty and cold, God somehow will redeem it to his glory. Fourthly, his love cannot be taken away from those whom he calls. Verse 35, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or the sword. Paul had been around all those things. No. In all things we overwhelmingly conquer, conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, there it is, folks, death itself cannot separate you from the love of God. Nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things, the powers, nor height, nor death, nor any created things will be able to separate from the love of God. And how do we find that love? Which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Not only has Paul suffered the one who writes these words, but he's writing about the one who suffered all the more. You see, God himself does not stand at a distance and look at our suffering. No, God put skin on. God was born to a, a poor Jewish carpenter and a teenage bride. He put flesh on. He died the most painful death known to humanity. He was crucified on the cross. Paul knew suffering, and the one about whom he preaches ultimately suffers, so there's no condemnation for us in Christ Jesus. Let me reread the passage for you this way. Sometimes there's going to be a tragedy in your life to the extent that you don't even know what to pray. There are no words that will comfort. There are no words to bring peace or joy. At that very moment when pain itself has forced you to silence, the Spirit of God within you will groan, and the Spirit of God will talk to you, and God will search your heart and find His Spirit groaning and have communion with you at your lowest moment. And you don't even need to pray words, just pray groans with the help of the Spirit. And in the midst of your deepest pain, know that God is at work, even though we don't understand. And if God is on our side, nobody can stand against us. And there's nothing that will ever separate you permanently from the love of God. Tribulation can't. Persecution cannot. Starving to death won't keep you from the love of God. Going naked will not keep you from the love of God. The sword cannot stop the love of God. Height nor death can't stop the love of God. Principalities and powers of all the demons of hell can't stop the love of God. And death itself cannot stop the glory God has plan for you. Now read it that way. Maybe you're at the groaning stage today. Frederick Douglass in his autobiography speaks of the groaning burden of suffering. He describes a slave selected to go to the great house farm for the monthly allowance for themselves and their fellow slaves. The wood says Douglas would reverberate with wild songs revealing at once the highest joy and the deepest sorrows. Douglas writes, I did not when a slave understand the deep meaning of those rude and apparently incoherent songs. They told a tale of woe which was then altogether beyond my feeble comprehension. They were tones loud and long and deep. They breathed the prayer and complaint of souls boiling over with the bitterest anguish. 
Every tone was a testimony against slavery and every prayer to God for deliverance from chains. The hearing of those wild notes always depressed my spirit and filled me with effable, ineffable sadness. I have frequently found myself in tears while hearing them. Paul assures us this morning that God hears our prayers even when we can only groan. No matter your present suffering, Paul says your future is glory. Let us pray. Oh God, some of us are at that groaning stage even this week. And no trite words will fix it. But we can listen to an apostle who suffered way beyond anything we'll ever suffer. And we can trust in a Jesus who hung on a cross, pierced for our transgressions. And God, though your plan and calling upon us remains a mystery and always will be, we know that our present suffering shall not, will not negate our future glory. For the Spirit who raised Christ from the dead dwells in those called your people. Your gospel is not a cheap gospel. It's a gospel of a God who suffers with his people that they might be glorified with him. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.